Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Mark Bradley, author of Blood Runs Coal. Our guest today is Mark Bradley. He is the author of this book, Blood Runs Coal, The Yablonsky Murders and the Battle for the United Mine Workers of America. Mark, this, this story took place 50 years ago or so. Why write about it now? It was the anniversary of it that attracted me initially, that, that it had been 50 years. And I looked back on what had been written about it, and there had been about three books written right around the time of the murders and the trials, and that was it. No one had ever tried to put them into historical context or tried to explain them in our labor history or American history, more importantly. So I thought it was time that these murders be revisited. Who was still around 50 years later to talk to you about it? Well, most importantly, uh, Chip Yablonski, uh, one of Jock's sons, who was active in his campaign and who was active also, too, in the reform movement, Monitors for Democracy, that followed in the wake of Jock's death, Richard Sprague, uh, the prosecutor who's still, uh, he's in his 90s now, still practicing law in Philadelphia. He was the special prosecutor who hunted down the killers and, and brought them to justice. And also, too, one of the killers, uh, Paul Gilly, who's still in Albion State Penitentiary. I spent four and a half hours with him. Um, so there were you know, those central characters, and then there were also characters who were involved in the Miners for Democracy reform. You know, it's, it's funny, as, as uh, the historian or the writer Mark Bowden always said, he said, 50 years is kind of an ideal time to write history because you not only have archives, enough time has passed, but you also still have living witnesses. So this book presented me with a, a great opportunity to not only deal with the paper, but also deal with the actual people who were involved in this, this, this story. Now, people watching this whose memories might not be clear, can you set the stage for us? Well, we're in 1969. And it's time for the United Mine Workers presidential uh, election. They, uh, they had their presidential elections every five years. And by 1969, uh, the United Mine Workers of America, which at one time been this country's greatest union, had fallen into uh, ill repute, had actually fallen into corrupt hands, the corrupt hands of W.A. Tony Boyle. Jacques Jablonski was a longtime United Mine Workers senior official. He was head of what was called District 5, which covered, in those days, southwestern Pennsylvania, very strong, very powerful district. And Yablonski uh, was very upset by the decline of the union he had devoted his life to. And he decided uh, very reluctantly. It took a lot of cajoling to do him. In fact, Ralph Nader was one of the ones who, who kept pressing him to do it. Nader was very interested in mine safety, and he realized the mines would not be safe as long as Tony Boyle was the president, convinced Jock to go ahead and, 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 and run. And in May 29th, 1969, Yablonski did the unheard of. He announced he was going to challenge Tony Boyle for the UMWA's presidency. That usually wasn't done inside the United Mine Workers. John Lewis, John L. Lewis, had run it for years, from the 1920s up to 1960. as kind of a, a benevolent dictator, as it were. 
And there had been some very minor challenges after uh, he died, but they were they were uh, mostly the, the kind of, of very low-level uh, miners who were challenging, and they had no traction. Yablonski was different. Uh, he was seen as a real threat to, uh, to Tony Boyle. And uh, to speed up the story a bit, on June 23rd, 1969, just about a month after Yablonski announced his uh, bid for the presidency, Boyle ordered him to be assassinated, ordered him to be executed. And Boyle and, and some of his henchmen wound up hiring uh, three hitmen who came from Cleveland. I, I put hitmen loosely. I called them in the book hillbilly hitmen. They were extraordinarily uh, inept, ruthless, but inept. And uh, it took them eight times to finally pull it off, but they were able to corner Yablonski and his wife and daughter in their home in Clarksville, Pennsylvania on New Year's Eve, 1969, during the very early morning hours and killed all three of them. And that led to a tremendous manhunt. Uh, the FBI was brought in and Richard Sprague came in and it took until 1974 to actually uh, put Tony Boyle behind bars. What kind of a guy was Tony Boyle? You know, he's a very insecure man, uh, a very ruthless man, one who craved power. Um, he uh, pretty much was uh, one of the ones, he, he, he would tell you he was following in John L. Lewis's footsteps. And he, he was in some ways, and in a lot of ways not. I mean, Lewis was much more charismatic. I mean, Lewis is one of our great labor leaders in this country's history. Tony Boyle, not so. But Boyle followed Lewis's policies in this sense, that he pretty much let the coal operators decide what the union was going to do and what it wasn't going to do. And that was disaster for the miners' safety and for their wages and benefits. And so he uh, came from Montana. Uh, he was uh, had come up the hard way. I mean, he came from a long, long uh, line of miners. Uh, he'd had his thumb blown off in a mine explosion. He had been beaten to a pulp uh, during organizing. And he was a rough, tough, uh, tough guy. But he was also uh, unpolished. Uh, he wasn't uh, uh, a very uh, learned guy, wasn't very sophisticated, but he, he was ruthless. And when it came to his power being challenged, he had no problem defending it up to the utmost, including ordering murder, if, if need be. You say in here, uh, he enjoyed watching television and seldom read anything other than union reports. And he and his school teacher wife filled the rooms of their home with photographs of him. Correct. It was a cult of self. Uh, it, it's fascinating. One of the things that, that I interested me most about Tony Boyle was, is that here you are he's living in Washington, D.C. They had a house right on the border up in up, Upper Northwest, up in, uh, on the border of Georgetown. And Washington had been the center of, of so many of the civil rights demonstrations and, and, and so much of, of the push for rights, not only with women, uh, gays, uh, African-Americans, whatever. And it's almost as if Boyle was totally oblivious to what was going on around him. Instead, he's in his house watching TV, looking at portraits of himself on the wall. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing for an American, I mean, for a labor union leader to do, especially one who was in charge of the what was then the wealthiest union in the United States. I mean, the UMWA had more money than the Teamsters, the auto workers, the steel workers combined. I mean, it was an extraordinarily powerful position, but this is what the man does. How did he get to be the head of the union? You know, it's a fascinating question. Uh, Lewis brought him to Washington in the late 1950s as a special assistant. And that meant that he gave Boyle the dirty work, uh, things that Lewis didn't want to do. Lewis always wore three-piece suits. 
He uh, liked to quote Shakespeare. He saw himself as a labor statesman. In fact, he lived down here in Alexandria in the old boyhood home of Robert E. Lee. There was a dark side to the union, and that meant that especially uh, after 1950, uh, what Lewis did is he entered into an agreement with the big coal operators that there'd be no more strikes, there'd be labor peace, as long as the work, as the the um, the operators contributed more to the uh, union pension fund. So there was this, he, Lewis invested the workers or the mine workers into production for the, for the coal operators. So you've got this kind of really odd juxtaposition. Uh, instead of being a, an antagonistic relationship, it became uh, you know, almost a, a partnership. And again, a partnership can be good in, in some ways, as long as it's equal. In this case, it, it wasn't. And so anyway, he put Boyle in charge of organizing some of the, the, the fields that weren't organized. That, that one of the things that was happening, especially out in Kentucky and Tennessee was because of the um, Tennessee Valley Authority, which burned a lot of coal, federal government had ordered that the, the TVA use the cheapest coal it could, it could buy. So that meant there was an incentive for non-union uh, coal operators to step into the game because they weren't paying pensions, they weren't paying health insurance, they weren't doing anything except bringing coal out of the ground and selling it. So the coal operators told Lewis, look, we're being undercut out here badly by these independent operators. You've got to take care of them. You've got to bring them into the union or get rid of them. Well, that was Tony Boyle's task. And, and you know, either bring them into the fold or get rid of them. And basically what you had out there in the 1950s was a, was a, was a war out in eastern Kentucky and, and uh, Tennessee, a, a shooting war. Well, after, so, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was just saying that, that Boyle did, did very well at that. Uh, Lewis stepped down in 1960. Uh, uh, a guy named Kennedy became the president. He was very geriatric, had cancer. And you know, Boyle, as vice president, took over the union. Was he, he wasn't elected. <laughs> was he popular with the miners? You know, it, it's funny uh, that, that you say that. He, he uh, if, if you look at the the way that the election of 1969 ran, I mean, he beat John Blanc, and I did it with massive fraud and, and money. But the, the miners, and this may sound strange in, a, in, a, in, in 2021, but if you look back, they were very, very loyal to their leadership. And you have to under, ask yourself why that was. And the answer was the union was all they had. It is instructive uh, that labor history in this country is not really taught anymore in, in, in high schools or colleges. I mean, it's very difficult if you look at an American history curriculum in any university. I mean, maybe up at Pitt, maybe Carnegie Mellon, maybe Cornell, but very isolated uh, uh, work on, on, on or teaching uh, pupils about labor history. And what you know is, if you study labor history, is how violent our labor history was. I mean, eight-hour workday, health insurance, sick leave, pensions, all that comes out of the labor movement. And all of it came with blood. None of it came willingly. I mean, this is a capitalistic country. And, that, you know, every man for himself. And, and so these rights had to be very, uh, they were very uh, violently fought over. And, and, and so, you know, you, you went with, with what you, what your side was, and in this side, the worker side was the union. So you didn't question your union's leadership. And Lewis had never had an election, I mean, since the, the 1920s. I mean, there was no reason. He was the king. And so here he is. He, he appoints Tony Boyle. So why would you question John L. Lewis's judgment? I mean, he, he's the one who gave this man a rubber stamp. So you know, he, he was popular in the sense that union was popular. 
You say in your book, you quote uh, Jack Yablonski's two sons as saying, murder is as institutionalized with United Mine Workers as it is with the mafia. Was right. it was it always like that? And was it like that with unions in general at the time? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, that, that comment is, it's, again, you put it in, in context of having your, your mother, father, and, and sister murdered by people hired by the union. Uh, it, it was a violent history, uh, no question, but there was violence on both sides. I mean, the, the mine workers were victimized by the, 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 the mine owners, too. I mean, it was, it was tit for tat, especially out in Appalachia. Uh, where that was kind of the code of, 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 of the hills. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that, 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 that you know, I would equate the, the mine workers with, with the mafia. I mean, their, their killings were, were directed, as I say in the book, especially with, with Albert Pass, we can go into him in a minute. He was one of the ones who actually orchestrated Yubonsky's murder, one of uh, Tony Boyle's lieutenants. There was a, 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 in Pass's mind, there was a difference between a killing and a murder. A murder was a sin. You didn't do that. A killing was necessary. And so how do you differentiate those two? And Pass would tell you that a killing meant that somebody needed to be killed because they were threatening our way of life. A murder was a sin. There's a difference between killing somebody and murdering them. I mean, that sounds very, very strange, but it's how these, you know, how it was seen. So it was the way of life with the Mine Workers Union? You mean the, the violence or, or the killings? The violence, that? yeah. In, in, in some ways. I mean, again, up in southwestern Pennsylvania, no. Uh, and, and down in Harlan County and down in Kentucky and in Tennessee, yes. It depended on, on where you were and what the circumstances were. I mean, it would be wrong to think of the, the entire United Mine Workers at that time as a mafia. I mean, again, there were pockets of, of, of violence that were quite violent. But there were other pockets that were quite, you know, uh, normal. People went to work and and came home. Now, your book starts with a story of uh, an explosion at a consolidated coal company. Why did right. you decide to start the book that way? Started it that way because that really, really angered Jock Blonsky, and it also galvanized Ralph Nader to, to begin to look into the mine workers. And uh, without Ralph Nader, I don't think he would have had a Jock Blonsky run for the presidency in 1969. I mean, what happens is there's a Awful explosion on November 20th, 1968, kills 78 uh, miners. And it was uh, an accident that, that could have been prevented. It was a very gassy mine, and, and, and somebody turned off, somebody in the company turned off the alarm system. So as the mine began to fill up with gas, miners had no idea they were about to, to be blown up. Now, the reason they turned it off was because it, they'd, it had been turned off uh, several times that day, and it had halted production. And that, that's not that's not the way it works. I mean, you got to dig the coal to get paid, and and so um, the miners were seventy-eight of them were killed. Boyle uh, came in that later that day, that same day, in a helicopter supplied by the company, and in his uh, fedora and his suit, and praised that that uh, coal company safety record, as seventy-eight of his members laid dead or dying inside that uh, that mine. And Yablonski, who was down in Clarksville, looked at that and said, how is that possible that a union leader, much less a United Mine Workers leader, praise a company and 78 of his men are lying dead in, in a hole that, that you know, was as unsafe as, as it could be? 
Ralph Nader saw that too. Uh, Nader had been interested uh, before the explosion in black lung. He had, he, you know, already it's been a chronic problem for miners since since you dug coal. Nader had focused in on on, on black lung, and, and he realized, as I said earlier, that there would be no use to have safety legislation pushed through Congress if Tony Boyle was still in charge of the United Mine Works, because Boyle wouldn't enforce it. Because safety means what? It means that coal production has to slow or has to stop when there are unsafe conditions inside of a mine. So that's not what, 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 what Tony Boyle is there for. Boyle wants to, as much coal dug as possible because the more coal is dug, the richer the union can get. So anyway, Nader realized that there had to be a change. And so he began to look for somebody he thought who could challenge Boyle, beat him, and actually begin to turn the mine workers back to the union that spearheaded reform. I mean, people forget, but without the United Mine Workers, it would have been no United Auto Workers, it would have been no United Steel Workers. They were the uh, the bulwark, the battering ram of organized labor back in the 30s. They were a, 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 a well, they, they were. They were the leading union in, in, in the United States. And they brought a lot of people into the middle class and, and, and into being able to send their kids to school, be able to have uh, their miners make enough money to buy a home. I mean, it was a, it was a, a marvelous thing. Now, Tony Boyle's brother owned some mines. Did that motivate him at all to, to, to Tony Boyle in his decision about how to treat the owners? Yeah, it, it, it did. I mean, uh, Boyle actually had a couple brothers up in Montana who were running these jackleg mines that were terribly unsafe. And, and Boyle fought against legislation as, as he was in, in charge of the district up there, opposed any type of safety reforms inside these mines. And even when workers were killed in the Boyle brothers' mines, uh, Boyle said, no, it was a, it was an unavoidable risk. I mean, it just, it just part of being a coal miner, you're going to get killed every now and then. I mean, yeah, so I mean, it was a, it was a extraordinarily bit of callousness on, on, on Boyle's part. Now, we haven't yet talked about Jock Yablonski. So who was he? Yablonski, as I said earlier, was a longtime UMWA official. Born in Pittsburgh in uh, 1910, grew up in a in a in a, in a uh, household. His father was a miner. He had actually immigrated to the United States from what is now Poland. In those days, it was part of Russia, Pittsburgh, and had gone immediately into the mines as so many of our immigrants did around Pittsburgh. And well, that's what you did. And and Yablonsky, uh dropped out of school and followed his father into the mines, and. He had a, a rough, rough start as a young man. I mean, he was involved in some criminal activity. He broke into a slot machine in a moose club and did some time in, 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 uh, in prison. And just luckily, just luckily, uh, he was saved in a way by the United Mine Workers because the mine workers in the 1930s, uh, thanks to FDR and, 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 and trying to get us through the Depression, uh, made a concerted effort to make unions stronger and put more people back to work. And the unions needed tough, rough guys who could stand up to the owners, especially during organizing. You can get a baseball bat inside the head or, you know, a crowbar or whatever else. And so Yablonski became uh, not only a miner, he became a, uh, a leader at the local and then at the district level. And then ultimately rose up to, to their international executive board, kind of College of Cardinals which was supposed to be, you know, the main advisory board for the president of the union. So he, he spent his, his entire adult life 
as a coal miner and most of it in the United Mine Workers of America. It sounds like he was not a saint. Not by a long shot. I mean, he, he, was, he, he was not a saint. He mellowed over time. And, and I think, uh, as the book demonstrates, a man of extraordinary courage. Um, I, we can get into this a little later on, but I think he knew what he was doing, that when he, he took on Boyle, he likely wasn't going to make it. He was not going to live to see it see it through. But no, I mean, I, I came from a very rough background, very rough times. And luckily, I, I think um, uh, he married for the second time. Uh, and, and that marriage, uh, I think, really began to turn him around in a way that, that you know, he had not been. And as he became more important in the union, I mean, he became uh, much more of a reader, much more of an intellectual, much more polished. How old was he at the time that he ran for uh, UMW president? 59, which is late. And what was his job with the union at the time? He was on the uh, international executive board. He had been District 5 president, but Boyle had forced him out in 1965 uh, because uh, I think he saw him as, as a threat. And, and, and he wanted him a little closer to him uh, here in Washington. So he worked in Washington? He, he did. Uh, he, his immediate position before he decided to run was he was uh, head of the, of the union's nonpartisan league, which is, was the lobbying arm of the United Mine Workers of America. So his position was here in D.C. How did he and Ralph Nader hook up? Interesting story. They uh, hooked up kind of serendipitously. Uh, Jock had a, uh, a nephew named Stephen Jablonski, who was a young lawyer here in Washington. And the law firm that, that Stephen was with uh, was doing some automobile safety cases and consumer rights cases. And guess what? I mean, who, who was the big consumer advocate at that time but Ralph Nader? So they got to know one another. And as they began to talk, uh, Stephen told Ralph that he had an uncle who was a high official up in the United Mine Workers, and that the uncle, uh, or that his uncle, was very dissatisfied, very angry at the turn the union had taken under Tony Boyle. So Nader's ears perked up and 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 uh, pricked up and 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 uh, asked Stephen if he would arrange a meeting between the two of them, between Jock. And, and, and Ralph Nader. And so uh, Stephen said yes, and Jablonski did. They, they met uh, almost, it was almost at midnight, it was, you know, a very secret meeting because uh, Jock was afraid of, of, of Tony Boyle. Tony Boyle spies always, I mean, Boyle, I mean, it was not a healthy environment for dissent. And so uh, I think it took Ralph Nader and Jock, Jock Jablonski nine meetings before Jock finally decided that he would throw his hat in the ring and, and oppose uh, Tony Boyle. Because again, he knew exactly what Boyle was capable of. He knew exactly how dangerous this was going to be. And unfortunately, he was absolutely right about that. We also write in the book around this time, uh, Yablonski gave some speeches praising Tony Boyle. He did. And, and it, it came back to bite him, particularly when Boyle uh, made released recordings during the campaign and said, look, I mean, this is, this guy's criticizing me now, but, but a couple months ago, he was telling me or telling you all that I could walk on water. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't a smart move. I, I think Yablonski uh, tell you that he did it because it was the way he could stay in the union. He was always afraid Boyle could, was going to fire him and you couldn't run for the presidency. If you were ousted, you had to be a member of the United Mine Workers itself. 
And Boyle was smart enough to realize that the best order in the union was Jock Yablonski. So it, it was, it was, it's a strange thing to, to think that Yablonski standing beside Tony Boyle in May of 1969 and praising him, but at the same time plotting his, uh, his overthrow. I mean, it it's, shows you kind of the Byzantine politics of the United Mine Workers at that time in, in, in their history. Now, you're right about this, uh, this uh, fellow on the inside of the union with Tony Boyle, but Titler, T-I-T-L-E-R. George Titler. Titler, yeah. George Titler. Yeah. And um, you say that during the union's 1964 presidential election in West Virginia, while loyal local officials brought him their ballot boxes in between large bites of food, Titler shredded anti-Boyle ballots and substituted new ones, guaranteeing that his patron won the state in a landslide. Now, uh, Jackie Balanci must have known that this is the way elections work. So whatever made him think that he might stand a chance? Well, he thought that if he could get Ralph Nader and get enough national publicity on this thing, maybe get the Department of Labor involved, the Department of Justice, things could be different. He knew exactly, you're, you're right, that's a very good point. He knew exactly what, what, what the history of these elections was. It was, it was awful. But if you, again, if you could garner the national attention, bring the Kligalites in. And again, you have to remember in our history at this time, I mean, you've had massive protests against the Vietnam War. A lot of people are challenging authority. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a time of, of, of foment and it's a time of hope for protests. And so again, one of the things I tried to do in this book was to put this, this effort into an historical context. It just wasn't a vacuum. There were other things that were pushing Blonsky along too. I mean, Jock was very opposed to the Vietnam War. You say he was, he was at Grant Park at the Democratic National Convention Correct. in 1968. He, he wandered among the crowd after the police had, had beaten the hell out of the demonstrators and, and, and was very disturbed by the violence of the 1968 Democratic Convention. He gave a speech at the University of Pittsburgh. The SDS, Students for Democratic Society, had invited him, of all groups. And Yablonski gives a speech that, that's anti-Vietnam War. Now, never mind the United Mine Workers that year endorsed Hubert Humphrey, whose policy was to carry on the war. So Yablonski is, is moving more to the left, in, in a way. And I think, you know, that idealism certainly inspired him to, to, to move forward with this effort, too. What kind of media coverage did the election get, the campaign? It, it, got a lot. I, I mean, it, it's one of the interesting things uh, uh, about this campaign, because normally, I mean, you had no United Mine Workers elections. And this was kind of a new thing for the media. I mean, they're actually going to have a real election. So that attracted a lot of reporters. You had people such as Ben Franklin of, of the uh, New York Times covered very close to the Washington Post, covered it, the Pittsburgh Press, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the Louisville Courier-Journal, uh, uh, people like Ward Sinclair. So you had a, a lot of interest in this, which was, was great as an author to be able to go back and, and get these real-time press accounts. I mean, you had even a local radio station here. We, we still have it, WTOP, back in those days, gave editorials uh, every day. And, and some of the editorials were on the United Mine Workers election. I mean, who would have thought that in Washington? But no, it, it, it garnered attention because it was so unusual, I think. And, and again, I mean, you have to go back to the times. I mean, the, the, now the, it's interesting that it took so long for reform to kind of trickle back into the United Mine Workers. I mean, part of it was because the election cycle. You know, before this 1969 election, the last one had been in 1964. So you had this five-year gap where you really couldn't do much anyway. But when it did come, I mean, there were a lot of these um, uh, miners who supported Jablonski were motivated by 
what was going on in our country. I mean, the mine workers had a lot of Vietnam veterans, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, that Vista had, had come in, in into West Virginia, Kentucky, the Vista volunteers, I mean, bringing their ideas of democracy and reform. So it's a, it's a fascinating time in, in American history. How did Jack Yablonski campaign? You know, he, he uh, campaigned a lot on foot. Uh, you know, he had the, the use of a, of, a, of a small plane, one of the doctors, uh, one of the black, black lung doctors. Uh, there were three of them who supported Yablonski's campaign in West Virginia. They, these were men who had dedicated their lives to, to combating uh, black lung in, the, in their patients, and they got behind Yablonski. But uh, most of the money came from him and his family. And so it was a very shoestring campaign. Uh, a lot of driving over the flat tops uh, or, or road tops of, 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 of Appalachia. Um, a lot of a, a lot of uh, a lot of speeches. I mean, Yablonski uh, was at one point was working 22 hours a day. I mean, just a killer, killer schedule. Um, but you said at one point Ralph Nader abandoned him. Well, yeah, uh, it's a matter of, 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 of dispute. I mean, Yablonski certainly thought so. Nader said not. I mean, I you know, and I interviewed uh, Ralph Nader about this, and uh, I think you know, you, you, when they finally had their final ninth meeting or agreement on that, Jock was going to challenge Tony Boyle. Nader promised he would do everything he could for him. You know, you got my full support. Well, Nader at that time. You know, was on the cover of U.S. News and World Report. He was one of the most famous people in this country and had many, many causes. The mine workers were only one out of many. And I think Jock was kind of starstruck. I mean, he, he worshipped Nader and saw in him, here was a guy who'd stood up to General Motors, you know, after the, the Corvair debacle. And here's a man who had taken the lion and twisted his tail and actually won. And so he was starstruck by, by Nader. But Nader uh, made it clear, uh, that, that, and he made, made it clear on, on May 29th, uh, 1969, when Yablonski announced when the press asked him, what's your involvement? You, Nader said, you know, my job is to, is to see that there's press coverage and things like that. But I mean, I don't raise money. I, I don't campaign. I, that's not who I am. And so there was a misunderstanding. And I think Yablonski thought that Nader should have done more uh, to help him. And, 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 and Nader always thought that, that, that you know, Yablonski kind of misunderstood what what he was actually offering him was was Yablonski ever in danger during the campaign? He was. He was in danger from the almost from from day one. Uh, Oil orders him to be killed on June twenty third. I think it's June twenty seventh or June twenty eighth. Yablonski flew up to uh, Springfield, Illinois, to attend what he thought was going to be a meeting of friendly supporters. He gets to this meeting. It's anything but. I mean, these, these guys are angry at him for challenging Tony Boyle. About 15 to 20 people in the room. I got the FBI file on, on, on what happened. And as Yablonski is leaning over a table, talking to one of the, the uh, miners who's come to the meeting, he gets a vicious karate punch or chop right to the back of his neck. It, it almost kills him. I, I mean, it flattens him out on the floor. And he's just left there in the floor by himself. Uh, and it was, some say it was an assassination attempt. And I've got a fourth degree black belt in karate. I, I know how hard it is, to, I mean, to place a punch right. It, it, it's still unclear to me whether it was a strong warning 
to get out of the way and stop or whether it was an actual attempt. Whatever it was, it, it was it was a very strong statement that Yablonski's life was going to be in danger. In fact, until the day he was murdered, Yablonski still had tingling in his fingers and, and numbness in, in, in his feet. The remarkable thing about it was uh, when Yablonski uh, covered, he went back to Clarksville, the uh, local person who had sponsored the meeting said, you know, I wouldn't call the police on this. It's not going to be good publicity for your campaign. So Yablonski reluctantly said, you know what, I just want to get out of this place and get back to Clarksville. And when he got back to Clarksville uh, and got back on his feet, he got back on his feet for a July 4th rally here in Washington. He said, you know, Tony Boyle's going to have to kill me to get me out of this race. And of course, prophetically, <laughs> exactly what, uh, what happened. Have you been to Clarksville? I have. What's it like? I have. You know, I had trouble getting a cup of coffee up there on a Saturday. Uh, the, the one place that was open was a fire station. And, and uh, I went in there and asked for directions to the house. I was using one of the killer's confessions to try to figure out how they drove into Clarksville. And I, I, they were very kind and directed me to the house. You cross this little creek, 10-mile creek, and up on the hill is the house. And it was, uh, it was uh, fascinating. I, I got to the house, uh, stopped in front of it, and, and was just looking at it. And this guy walks up to me and says, can I help you? And I said, well, you know, I'm a writer. I'm also from the Department of Justice. At that time, I was a DOJ attorney. I said, I'm writing a book on the Yablonski murders, and I'm trying to figure out which door the killers used to get into the house. Because you know, the house was an old 18th century farmhouse. And back in the, when the killings took place, it was all surrounded by fir trees. Now it's not, it's just naked. It's just standing on this little, kind of a small hill. And he said, well, I'll show you. And, and so this, this, this guy, his name was uh, James Luzier. Uh, his family bought the house in an auction after the murders took place. Family tried to sell the home, the Bonsky family tried to sell the home after the murders and no one wanted it. Uh, and so it got put up for auction and Jimmy's family bought it, and so he gave me uh, a tour of the house. So I went into it, and it was almost like a time capsule because Jimmy said he'd been raised in the house, but that no one really had the money in Clarksville, at least of all his family, to renovate the house. So the wallpaper was the same. It was almost like a, a time capsule, and there was still a bullet hole up in the bedroom floor of Jockey Blonsky's bedroom, right through the, the, the center of, of, of the the floor there, right, right where the body was slumped over against the radiator. I mean, it was it was it was one of the strangest experiences I've ever had as a writer. And again, it was a time cast. It was almost as if you expected Jacques Yablonski to walk through the door. That's what the house looked like. And the really tragic thing about that trip was a month later, Jimmy was killed in a car wreck. So, uh, so it was. I, uh, I, I just had kind of a bad sense about that 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 house. Whereabouts in Pennsylvania is Clarksville? Southwest Pennsylvania. It's about 60 miles, I guess, southwest of Pittsburgh. I mean, you're, you're not too far from the West Virginia line. It, right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's on the river there. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting booking place. I mean, I, I, I commend anybody to go visit it. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth a trip. Now, you mentioned you're a fourth degree black belt in karate, and I wanted to read right. your, your bio from the back flap. Right. Right. It says, Mark Bradley has been a U.S. Department of Justice lawyer a criminal defense lawyer and a CIA intelligence officer, currently the director of the Information Security Oversight Office of the National Archives and Records Administration. What 
What is your job right now? What does that involve? Well, what I do is as the director of the Information Security Oversight Office, which we call ISU, that's our acronym. We, uh, I oversee how the federal government classifies and declassifies national security information primarily. I also have a big role in our national industrial security base to make sure that the contractors are handling classified information properly. We do something called controlled unclassified information, which is sensitive information is neither classified nor classified. Uh, I also chair a committee, uh, state, local, tribal uh, uh, policy action committee to make sure that our state, local uh, uh, and private sector and, and tribal uh, groups are getting classified information that they need to be able to protect our infrastructure. So I was appointed by, uh, not appointed, I was uh, nominated by the Archivist of the United States in 2016 and then approved by President Obama that same year. So I've been there since December of 2016. So you get to read all the classified stuff? You know, I, I, I try not to. <laughs> At this stage in my career, you know, I, I, we, we have a, a rule that's called need to know, and, and I don't go any, any beyond what, what I'm supposed to, uh, to read. I guess you can't talk much about your time at the CIA. I don't. I, I don't. Is this your first book? No, second. Uh, my first book was a, a book called A Very Principled Boy, The Life of Duncan Lee, uh, Red Spy and Cold Warriors. But, but I remember the Lee family who uh, spied for the Soviet Union during World War II. So. Um, I, I want to get to the, the uh, we haven't talked about the actual killing and the plot for it. You said that it was Tony Boyle who said, kill him that i mean it actually came straight from tony boyle did it, it did it, it was you know your boss needs to be be taken care of i mean and so that meant well, <laughs> means what it says was that a, had, was that a first ahead. for tony boyle or could could you no. figure out whether he had ordered other killings yeah yeah i mean he had uh there was a, a famous case here in virginia uh, uh where he had uh, ordered a uh, a a Virginia miner to, to assassinate two small coal, coal operators, and the the um, miner said, "You know, I, I'm I'm great at blowing up equipment. I've got no problem with that. You know, blowing up a pump house, blowing up a bulldozer, but I'm not a killer." And and so he was uh, summarily fired and thrown out of the union. I mean, it, it again. I mean, you get back to what I said originally: the difference between a killing and a murder. And, and killing was just business. I mean, these guys, you know, getting in our way. And so they've got to be removed. They're not going to join a union. They're not going to be reasonable. Kill them. That does sound like a scene out of mob movies. Yeah, it does. It, it, it does. I mean, and, and it's particularly jarring to our sensibilities now. I mean, it's, it's shocking. Uh, when, when Tony Boyle said, okay, we go kill Yablonski, who did he say it to? He had two uh, lieutenants. There was a, a board meeting at International... Uh, executive board meeting that Yablonski was, was at on June 23rd. And there had been a shouting match inside that meeting uh, where Yablonski was raked over the coals by the other members for challenging Boyle. And you don't, you don't do this. And so there'd been a shouting match. And, and, and here was Boyle being humiliated in front of his, his followers. I mean, this guy's saying things that no one else has said to Tony Boyle. And so Boyle went out in the hallway, and he he uh, was uh, he summoned, motioned over Albert Pass, who was the secretary of District 19, which was the union's most violent district over in Kentucky and Tennessee, and William Turnblazer, who was the nominal president, and said, uh, 
you know, Jablonski's got to be taken care of. He's, he's a threat to us. We've got to take care of him. And Pass said, no one else wants the job. We'll do it. District 19, uh, at that, in those days, again, you're uh, in, in eastern Kentucky and, and, and over there in uh, Tennessee, that if you wanted something done, that's where you went. I mean, these, these were the rough boys. And, and they had, a, again, a lot of experience because of this problem with the TVA and, and, and the independent coal miners. I mean, these guys have been fighting for a long, long time out there. And violence was just one tool in the toolbox that, that you used. So that's that's where this group is is from. Now the killing didn't take place until after the election. Why isn't it right. a moot point after the election? You know, it, it wasn't. Wasn't. I mean, you know, he'd beaten Jablonski soundly again. Jock would, would said. I mean, it was a fraud. I mean, by massive fraud, this wasn't 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 a fair election at all. And and that if, you know, we need to get the Department of Labor involved, and that's going to take some time. But Jablonski made it clear at a speech. Um, in, in uh, Sofia, West Virginia, after after the defeat, that the fight was just really beginning, that he was not going to give up, that we're going to pursue all legal avenues, I mean, meaning the courts, and also through the administrative procedures of the, of the Department of Labor, and that he was not going to rest until Tony Boyle was behind bars. So that was it. I mean, you know, in a way, you know, he probably sealed his own death warrant or signed his own death warrant again. Um, he had written a very prophetic letter to the Department of Labor after that saying, you know, um, please uh, understand that, you know, whatever the sacrifice is going to be, that I've got to make it. And I'm going I'm, I'm to go forward. And so, I mean, this is, you know, it, as I said, or Fonda saying, I mean, this story has the dimensions of a great tragedy with characters that Shakespeare would have liked to have written about. I mean, you can't make this stuff up the way that it, it, it happens. That you got this almost inevitability about it. This is not going to end well. That this, that something awful, awful is going to happen. And it did. So Yablonsky was still working in the kind of inner circle of the union as he was running against Boyle? He still had you know, a job he, there? He was still, uh, Boyle had fired him from the from the uh, being the head of the nonpartisan league, he was acting director of this lobbying arm. Blonsky uh, did one very very smart thing uh, before he or as after he announced his um, bid. That was to hire Joseph Rao Jr. as his lawyer. Joe Rao was one of this country's greatest civil rights lawyers, and also again an extraordinarily skilled advocate in the courtroom. And he was able to get Yablonsky uh, re reappointed as as the uh, head of the nonpartisan league, the lobbying arm. And Yablonsky from time to time would go back. There was a big uh, coal mining safety legislation that later became uh, law. Now, Richard Nixon <laughs> signed it into law on, on almost, I think it was five hours after before Yablonsky was assassinated. So that that we, we still it's we still have big parts of that law in effect to this day. Did, did the federal government or the FBI or the, the Labor Department know that this all this was going on in the Mine Workers Union? It did. It, it did, uh, at least up, up, up to a point. I mean, as a, as a member of the federal government, I don't want to be too critical of my, my, my own job, <clears throat> my, 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 my own, uh, own, own organizations. But the, 
the policy of the Department of Labor, especially in the Nixon administration, was kind of laissez-faire, that let labor run its own business. I mean, they're not going to vote for us in any way. <laughs> so we're not losing any votes. And, and there had been something in the late 1950s, uh, the Landrum-Griffin Act, uh, which uh, came out of something called the McClellan hearings, which looked at, especially at the Teamsters and organized crime inside that labor union. And so one of the things that came out of that legislation was, you know, that what the miners, uh, what, what, what our labor unions need is more democracy. And they need to learn to do that themselves. So the government was already kind of taking up a backward step on that. Like, we don't want to get too much involved in this, but we want to give them a structure. You know, that's what the legislation says, this is how you have a fair election. This is how you, you know, comport yourself, do it. And then you know, our, our hands are off. Joe Rao in particular, as Yablonski's lawyer, wrote several letters to the Department of Labor and, 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 and tried desperately to get the DOL into to monitor the elections. But the way the law read at the time was is that the DOL couldn't come in or labor could not come in until after the election was was finished. It, it, you know, I mean, they had some vague investi investigative powers before. But they didn't want to be seen as tipping the balance towards one side or the other. I'm investigating Boyle, so that's going to favor your Blanche, or I'm going to investigate your Blanche, so it's going to favor Boyle. So they were in a very difficult position given the way the law was written at the time. And so their, their attitude was, you know what, you guys have this election, and then after it's over, if you have really valid complaints, we'll look at them, and if they merit uh, an overturning, then we'll do it then. And Yablonsky said, nah, that's going to be way too late. You don't understand what's, what's happening. I want to ask you about a couple of characters in your book. One is uh, Monsignor Charles Owen Rice. Right. Yeah, he was, uh, I guess, uh, uh, one of the, at, at that time, certainly a major, major figure in the Catholic Church in, in Western Pennsylvania. And he was uh, you know, one of these um, liberal priests who uh, had actually had married uh, Jackie Blonsky and, and his second wife or presided over the, the ceremony. And you know, had been very active in, in the Vietnam War as, as a protester. Uh, again, a, a very liberal, pro-labor uh, priest. And uh, you know, unfortunately for him, he got to preside not, over, not only over the Yablonskis' marriage, but also over their uh, funeral service. You say at the funeral, he urged coal miners in the audience to carry on the great cause of ousting Tony Boyle from their union and restoring democracy to the UMWA. So there was. No doubt about where Monsignor uh, Rice stood. Exactly right. No, again, he came out of a, a background of protest. Uh, I mean, we would call him today a liberal priest, uh, and and he was very pro uh, pro worker, and he knew exactly what. I mean, being in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania, I mean, he, he knew enough about the United Mine Workers to know exactly what 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 it was and, and what it needed to be. Someone else I want to ask about is Lucy Gilly. Right. She was Paul Gilly's wife. Uh, Gilly was one of the three men who went to Clarksville on New Year's Eve, 1969, to assassinate uh, Jock Yablonski. In the process, wound up uh, killing the wife and daughter, too. She uh, was from Tennessee. Her father was a man named Silas Huddleston, who was one of the union's roughest, toughest, meanest enforcers. And he, uh, in the summer of 1969, traveled to Cleveland, where Lucy lived, and was able to talk her husband, Paul, into trying to help him find killers who would take care of uh, Jackie Blonsky. 
And so Lucy was, uh, I mean, without Lucy, there, there would have been no Paul and there would have probably been no killings. Um, so she plays a, a role in it, although interestingly enough, and, and it's one of the ironies of this book, she winds up getting into the federal witness protection program uh, and walks away from this whole thing scot-free. How many people knew that this whole plot was unfolding? Probably about nine. I mean, it was very tightly compartmented, at least at the beginning of it. I mean, you, you had Boyle, obviously. You had uh, Turnblazer and, and Past, the two he had talked to. And then Turnblazer, when he got back, and, and Past, when he got back to Kentucky, turned to a man named William Prater. Prater was uh, William, or Albert Pass's um, chief lieutenant. And when Pass wanted something done in District 19, Prater was the guy he turned to. He was a, uh, what they call a, a, a representative. His, his job was uh, to um, help the miners with their pension claims, to, to, to help with, with any type of, of local problems that they had. He was a very uh, devoted um, um, person to the union. I mean, one of the things that, that it's clear in this, in this, that you ask how people can do this. And, and it's, again, that there was no questioning inside the union of, of what your bosses wanted you to do. It just wasn't done. There was no culture of protest. There was no culture of dissent. If Albert Pass said this man needed to be killed, then he needed to be killed. It was, it was as simple as that. If Tony Boyle wanted somebody done, that's, <laughs> it had to be done. It wasn't a debating society. This wasn't where you, you sat around and did the pros and cons. It was, okay, that's it. I mean, that, that, how are we going to do it? Hey, you said uh, that there were seven failed attempts at uh, killing Yablonski before they were successful? There, there were. I, I mean, there was one quote in the book that I am quite fond of, and that is, I'll, I'll just paraphrase it, that whoever hired the killers were as dumb as they were, maybe even dumber. I mean, that you get you get these... I mean, these, these were not professional killers by a long shot. I mean, they, they, they come out of what I call the hilly, hillbilly background uh, ghetto in Cleveland. There was a, a diaspora, if you were. When Lewis decided to let the, um, the um, owners or the coal operators mechanize their mines in the 50s to increase production, a lot of Appalachian families were uprooted. And, and, and it was it. You had... I mean, it's almost like like Ireland during a potato famine. You had this exodus north. And what you did is you had a huge unskilled labor population just kind of cast out. And so, you know, you went to places like Akron. You went to places like Muncie. You went to places like Cleveland where you had plenty of light industry where you could be like a semi-skilled worker. And so you had this ready-made um, population that was kind of at loose ends up there. You had some who adjusted. Paul Gilly actually had a small painting company, and 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 worked just his uh, I mean, worked very hard to become respectable. The other two killers, Claude Veeley and, and and Auburn Buddy Martin, never could adjust to being out of the uh, out of Appalachia. They they were at loose ends. They were they were completely unmoored. So they they specialized in in, in small time theft mostly. I mean, so they they were not. This isn't the day of the jackal. I mean, this isn't the you know sophisticated uh, killer come, coming in. I mean, these guys had Martin had had been involved in a in a in a, in a firebombing of a house up in Cleveland uh, where a, a young girl had died. But beyond that, I mean, they 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 were mostly you know uh, burglary 
uh, types. I mean, they, they were small-time criminals. This was the big leagues. How much were they paid for this killing? Almost nothing. I mean, uh, really got a little over a thousand bucks. Uh, Martin got almost, I think, two thousand. They uh, immediately wasted it, as I say in the book, on booze, women, and cars. The money was gone within like uh, two days after the murder. I mean, it was an astonishing thing to lose three lives for that. Just well, astonishing. You write, uh, Claude Vealy and Buddy Martin were driving new cars when both men had been broke two days before. Uh, Vealy claimed he, Gilly, and Martin had robbed a bar in West Virginia. So their defense was that they robbed a bar. That's right. I mean, that that's, shows you the level of sophistication. Uh, I got the money because I committed the crime. <laughs> Not like I won the lottery or, or, you know, I inherited the money. It's, you know, I, I did something bad to get the money to start with. I mean, there's no thought processes going on. I spent uh, about eight years as a criminal defense lawyer here in, in D.C., and, and I, I've, I've represented people in, in all sorts of, of crimes. And it's, you, you know, you're, you're quickly disabused of the notion of the master criminal. If he or she exists, I've never seen him. I mean, so, so you wind up with, with things like this, and and they, you know, they 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 got the money, and and they they immediately begin, at least Martin did, begin to brag about the money that you know we we had hit it big the other night, we had done this and and done that, and and it, it was too conspicuous wealth to be flashing around the, the dollar bills, and then you know the word comes, the bodies, murders take place during the early morning hours in New Year's Eve, 1969. The bodies are found on January 5th, 1970, and that's. It's 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 news on CBS, NBC, Huntley Brinkley, Walter Cronkite, all this. It becomes national news that Yablonski's been assassinated. And so people immediately began to, to think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> there's, there's Here a, we go. There's a whole big part of the story about the investigation and how the FBI right. found the people and, and then the, the prosecution and the, the trials. And we won't have time to talk about that. But... But will you tell the story about uh, finding the rifle under the ice in uh, Monongahela River? Yeah. It was interesting. Uh, I mean, it's courageous. Uh, I mean, really extraordinary when you, when you think about it. The, uh, what, what happened was is, is that with um, murders, again, take place on, on New Year's Eve. Bodies are found on the 5th. Paul Vealy and, 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 Gil, and Gillian Martin are arrested on the, the 21st of January. Uh, and we can get into that a, a bit about the, the handwriting and, and, and all that was found in, in Blanche's study. But anyway, uh, when Beely confessed, uh, he gave a, a long statement, uh, and uh, the FBI then took him to Clarksville. And he pointed out, you know, the overlook where they had watched the house, you know, and they also uh, where they had thrown away the weapons after the killing and, and everything else. And, and he pointed to this place in the Monong. Nongahela River that, that runs, you know, outside Clarksville there as you're going back to Cleveland. And uh, the FBI summoned uh, one of its best divers and also a Navy diver to come in and look for these weapons. And they, they found both of them. They found the, uh, the rifle, and then they found the pistol. But it was in the dead of winter. In fact, it was the ice was so thick on on the Monongahela they had to break it open with ice. I mean, with, with a, an ice axe to be able to to get in there, and and for uh, almost a week, I mean, these guys slid around on their stomachs at the bottom of the river, uh, looking for these weapons, and 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 they they found them, and they took them immediately back to Washington to the FBI's uh, laboratory at uh, and were able to match up the serial numbers and, and everything else. I mean, 
you know, the FBI uh, can do some extraordinary work, and, and, and they certainly did in this case. Uh, we only have about two minutes left, but we shouldn't end this without bringing up the name Richard Sprague. Yes. Richard Sprague was a special prosecutor uh, who tried the killers. And as I'm often fond of saying, I wouldn't want Richard after me. Uh, he's in his 90s. He's still practicing law in Philadelphia with the firm Sprague and Sprague. Remarkable uh, man. I, I spent a couple of days with him up in Philadelphia in his office going over the files that he had of the case. Sprague at the time, uh, th there was a, a, a local uh, attorney, a local district attorney in, in uh, Washington County, Pennsylvania, where the cases were going to be prosecuted, a guy named Jess uh, Costa. Costa at that time, along with his office, the position of the district attorney was pretty much a part-time job. There was really no serious crime up there, in, or the, I mean, murder-type crime up in Washington County. Some, but nothing like this. And so Costa realized that this case was going to draw national attention. I mean, it was going to, and going to be on the front page of newspapers for a long, long time. And so the Deputy Attorney General of the, uh, Pennsylvania, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, the Attorney General of the United States, uh, recognized that probably the best prosecutor in Pennsylvania, if not the United States, was a guy named Richard Sprague in the Philadelphia DA's office. He was the first assistant up there, had an extraordinary record of convictions and, and first-degree murder cases. And so Sprague, realizing that this case was almost a prosecutor's dream, I mean, it had everything. And, and, and it was such a, a, such a call for justice that he got permission from Arlen Specter, his boss, to be able to take time away, although Specter was very hard on him and said, you still got to do your duties in Philadelphia. You still got to be the first assistant. But you can also prosecute the killers of the Yabonsky family. And Richard did it. I mean, it was a remarkable, remarkable uh, job of prosecution and trial work. I wish we had more time to talk about this because it's a lot of the story we did not cover. But if you want to know it, you'll have to read the book. It is called Blood Runs Coal, the Yablonsky Murders and the Battle for the United Mine Workers of America. And we've been speaking with the author, Mark Bradley. Thank you very much, Mark. Pleasure of mine. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.